1: Hello, and welcome to the Courtney Karen Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Heidi Klessig, and she is a retired anesthesiologist, but we're going to talk about some uh, other topics today, like uh, organ harvesting and uh, the brain death fallacy. We're going to talk about that today, and uh, I wanted to remind you all that we did update our site, so there's all sorts of great ways that you can uh, support the podcast there, so you can send me give some Go. You can do direct kind of, uh, you know, support through give and Go Venmo. Uh, I also have a P.O. Box, which I think we need to update and put that up on there. Of course, Element. Uh, so there's all sorts of products. You can, you can just buy me a coffee. Magic Die Call. I just did a follow-up episode with uh, Dr. Richard Presser. And we talked about the I Want My Health Back movement. We also talked some more about the Magic Die Dicol uh, Nanosoma product. Uh, so, look for that. Add me to your crowd. This is kind of like a personalized drudge report it, where you can create your own aggregates. And uh, we've been hard at work there, uh, making, you know, putting up all sorts of articles so we can curate, as opposed to being spoon fed, what the mainstream media wants you to see. And you can add, we can, it's a social media platform, so we can add each other and stay up to date on news that we share. And uh, then the saunas. So RNC. I I think we're going to be bringing uh, uh, John Richardson back on the show to talk more about the Latrils and his operation World without Cancer. So an EMF rock. So you can go through Honey Colony, of course. Uh, Miriam Hanin. We have done several shows together. Um, yeah. So you can scroll through and find uh, whatever ways that you would like to support and get your products for your health and wellness there. And uh yeah, so we will bring on Dr. Heidi Klessig. How are you doing today?
0: Hello. Thank you so much for having me on the program. Glad to be here. Likewise.
1: Yeah. So how how did this all come about? You were an anesthesiologist, right? We were just sharing anesthesia horror stories. I've, I've had my share of them because I've had a lot of surgery. Um, But fortunately, nothing, uh, you know, too dramatic (laughs) because that can go really wrong. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. So I'm guessing that's how you got interested in and uh, your eyes were open to what's going on with all of the organ harvesting.
0: Well, you know, when I was being trained to become an anesthesiologist, you know, doctors when we're being trained are inundated with so much information. I mean, we we have to learn anatomy, physiology. We have to learn pharmacology. It's it's just like drinking out of the proverbial fire hose. And so right. when you're trying to take it all in, you're very dependent on you know what your authorities are telling you. And there's no possible way you can research it all for yourself. So and right. so when I was in training, they uh, sent me up one day to, to evaluate a a young brain dead organ donor and bring him to the operating room to have his organs harvested. And at the time, you know, I was quite new and I, you know, I didn't want to look stupid. And so I said, gee, you know, an, an organ donor, is there anything I should know? And, you know, my, my supervising anesthesiologist kind of laughed, which was a bit disarming. And, and he said, just be sure someone's actually determined that he's brain dead. You know how eager the transplant team is. Well, that was pretty horrifying. So, you know, I I got my notes out and I went up to the ICU and here was a young man, I mean, about my age, frankly, who had been in a motorcycle accident. And sure enough, the, the neurologist had, according to the standards of the time, determined that he was brain dead. And I went to look at this young man, and, and frankly, I was really relieved that his family was not in the room with him. I mean, usually, in you've had a lot of surgery, you know how this goes, the anesthesiologist comes up to the room, uh, we ex- evaluate and examine you, and then we we talk to you and try to reassure you that no matter what the horror stories you've heard about anesthesia, we're going to do everything we can to make it a, a safe and comfortable and pain-free experience for you. But you know, what do you say to a family when their loved one isn't coming back? So I I don't know what I would have said at that point, but thankfully he was alone. So I went to examine him. He was lying, you know, in the ICU bed and he had monitors and, you know, there was his heart rate on the monitor, blip, 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 blip. I mean, he had beautiful blood pressure. He had almost a hundred percent saturation of oxygen in his blood. He was warm. He was pink. He looked like you know, a lot of ICU patients that I had taken care of who were expected to get better. So, okay. I I went back down to the operating room and talked to my supervising anesthesiologist. And he said, well, how are you going to anesthetize him? And I said, well, um, I'm going to give him a paralyzing agent, which is quite common in anesthesia. we surgeons don't like it when the patients move during surgery it makes their yeah. job very difficult and then I'm going to give a, a potent narcotic I believe it was fentanyl at the time and that will you know minimize pain so he doesn't have big blood pressure shift <laughs> well right. my attending anesthesiologist said well why don't you plan to give him anything to blunt consciousness and I said well wait a minute isn't he dead And my attending said, why don't you give him an anesthetic to blunt consciousness just in case? Okay. (laughs) I mean, it was a lot to take in, but I believed my authorities. So I brought the young man down and I gave him the anesthetic that we planned and watched the surgeons dismember him before my eyes. And at one point, point, then the surgeon said, okay, we're done with you. You can go. And I had never walked out on a patient in my life, but I did what I was told. I turned off the ventilator and I left. And honestly, it it shook me at the time, but I should have believed the evidence of my eyes. And I should have looked into it more at that time than I did. But I was young. I was being trained, I mean, indoctrinated, if you want to say, to think like a modern physician, like an anesthesiologist. And I sort of filed it in the back of my mind and went on with my career. And it wasn't actually till later in life, to my shame and horror, that I looked back on that experience and thought, dear God, what have I done? And so I became interested in pursuing more research into the topic. And the more I read and studied, I learned that for the last 60 or so years that we've been declaring people brain dead. Number one, there is no science behind it. This is opinion-based. There is no There are no tests, there's no evidence, there's no studies. In fact, a recent paper put out by the American Academy of Neurology right on the first page said, because of the lack of high quality evidence on the subject, I mean, we've been declaring people brain dead for almost 60 years. You would think by now there would be some high quality evidence, but there is not. So the AAN had to base their guidelines on opinion, a majority vote, which is not science. What I mean, that's not the scientific method. So I've made it sort of my, my calling now in, in retirement. I want to empower people to make well-informed medical decisions because brain death is not biological death. Brain death is a legal fiction. It's, it's a way of removing civil rights from mentally disabled people in order to justify removing their valuable, viable organs. And it's it's something that people are being misled about when they go to the Department of Motor Vehicles and are asked to sign a donor card. Right. Yeah. Wow. That that is horrifying. I am so sorry
1: you had that experience. That's I can't imagine being in that position. That's and then looking back on that. That's I, I would imagine that would be quite traumatic. Well, um, it's something
0: I'm going to have to live with the rest of my life, but I'm here to help other people not have to go through that.
1: Yeah, no. And thank you for doing that. Mm-hmm, thank you for yeah. calling attention to this. Um, that is so interesting when you bring up the DMV, because I, I, I'm just thinking about how, you know, how much that's pushed on us. I, I remember, you know, being a kid when you get your driver's license and it, that, that was the narrative. Like this, is the nice thing to do, you want to donate your organs and, uh, you know, I, I've definitely had a shift of perspective since then, uh, you know, knowing what I know now, but, well, sure. but and it and is you really, know, interesting.
0: Did you, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, and it shows not only are we, we misleading the adults, yeah. we're misleading people who are 16 years old, 15 yeah. years old, as they're filling out their temp permit, right? So this is something that needs, it needs further discussion. And when I began to research I found out there are many, many doctors who have written in medical journals. I mean, there's big textbooks. This is a you know, big, huge 400, 300 page textbook disputing brain death. Um, doctors, even doctors who are in favor of transplant have written books saying, yes, we admit these people are not dead, but we still want their organs. So why don't we change the medical ethics at the end of life to allow doctors to have sort of a justifiable homicide of these people? So this is something that even doctors who are pro-transplant, some of them admit that these people are not dead in a biological sense. And even you know, even the major news media is aware of this. If, if you wanted to put up my slide number two, I think, okay. Uh, the story of, of actress Ann Hash is, is a real good way for people to understand this. Now, your your viewers might remember uh, Ann Hash ran her Mini Cooper off the road and, and into a house uh, in, uh, what was it, August of 2022. And if you saw the footage at the time, she was communicating and responding to her uh, paramedics at the scene. But a few days later on August 11th, uh, her, Spokesperson said she was not expected to survive and indeed her doctors declared her brain dead later that evening. So if you go to the next slide, slide three, the L.A. Times, because brain death is equal to legal death in California, reported her death with the morning paper on August 12th. But both the New York Times and the Washington Post held their obituaries until her actual death by organ harvesting on August 14th. And I like uh, what the Washington Post obituary editor Adam Bernstein said. He said, it's black and white. There's no gray area here. If you're on life support, you are still alive. Other publications can make their own judgment about when they're comfortable publishing. I'm comfortable when someone is actually dead and this shows that even major news organizations are aware that brain death is not actual biological death right so that brings up the question i mean when when is someone dead right and that's that's the million dollar question here so if you go to my next slide if you look at a biology book you know in biological terms The book will tell you that death is the loss of the integrated functioning of the organism as a whole. And that's a lot of big words. What it really means is all of our systems in life work together in this beautiful, seamless harmony. And, you know, even a six-year-old child knows the difference between a live squirrel jumping around in the trees in the backyard and and a dead squirrel on the highway, right? Um, sure. The live squirrel: the heart is beating, the lungs are breathing, the animal's moving. It's it's pursuing its its little squirrel activities. I mean, it's able to reproduce and have young. These are all things compatible with life. Um, what keeps that integration going traditionally uh, is the. God-given spirit that all of us have. And it's when that spirit departs, traditionally, that we lose that integration. And the processes of growth and activity that we see in life are transformed to the processes of decay and destruction, which we which we see with death. Um, now, this had been the definition of death for thousands of years. I mean, Traditionally, it didn't take a doctor to tell you when you were dead. Usually this happened on the farm, at home, in the community. But when medical science began to develop intensive care units and ventilators, now there were people being kept alive in hospitals with this technology that had always previously been expected to be you know, terminal. So there was a fear on the part of doctors and hospitals that doctors would see these terminal patients filling up all the ICU beds and inundating hospitals. Uh, at the same time, right in the 1950s transplant surgery began to take off. And so people are saying, now, wait a minute. you know We have all these people who medical science hadn't yet caught up with their problem and they didn't think they could be cured. Whereas now, we have developed cured for cures for many of them and we have a need for viable organs and that's when a committee at, at harvard medical school if you want to go to slide eight there brought out their landmark article uh, a redefinition of coma and and what they did with this again just by the stroke of a pen as i mentioned earlier no tests no studies uh, no data at all they simply redefined certain people in a coma who had always been accepted as being alive previously as somehow being dead. Um, They did this because they knew that Dr. Christian Barnard, who you may have heard of, the surgeon who performed some of the first heart transplants, uh, had proven that you needed a beating heart to make a successful heart transplant. And taking beating hearts out of patients who had previously been considered to be alive, put doctors on very shaky ground, both ethically and legally. So they decided to simply redefine certain comatose people as being dead. What?
1: Wow. And they did this knowingly. Well,
0: and again, so much of our our battles today are our battles over the dictionary and the meaning of words, aren't they? Of course. I know. Yeah.
1: I don't know why I'm surprised. It's just really horrifying to hear it.
0: Well, it goes uh, back farther than we knew. I mean, we've, we've been seeing it more and more lately in the news, but it goes back to 1968 with this redefinition of death. And they did this to skirt what's called the dead donor rule. If you go to slide 10, the dead donor rule is not a law, but it's, it's an ethical, it's an ethical uh, precept um, that people who are being organ harvested must be dead prior to the procedure and they cannot be killed by the process of that organ removal. So what did they do? But they just redefined death to skirt that, that ethical principle.
1: Wow. So what did, uh, what did death, I know you were just talking about the integration of the the human, you know, spirit and body. Um, but did they have a the definition before, and what does it look like now of what death is? Well,
0: yeah. So pre- previously, death had always been um, when the heart and lungs stopped, and the person then became cold, stiff, gray, became a corpse. Um, and eventually would begin to decay and and putrefy. Honestly, that was the traditional way of determining death. So after 1968, there was sort of a a free-for-all, really. Doctors had many, many ways of declaring death. If you go to slide 12, between 1968 and 1981, over 30 different criteria for determining this new brain death type thing had been published, none of them had any scientific validation. There was no consensus. In fact, you could be declared brain dead in you know, Alaska and in uh, Arkansas, but not in Ohio. Ohio, you, the same person, if they just crossed a border, may or may not have been considered dead. And in fact, in Connecticut, They had two standards for death. They had one standard for people generally, and then kind of an easier, looser standard. If if you had signed up as an organ donor, it made it easier to be dead in in Connecticut. So in 1981, if you go to the the next slide, um, There was a president's commission that studied uh, brain death and they decided that they would redefine death um, with a model statute that the entire nation could uh, go ahead and adopt. And if you go to the next slide, uh, that became the 1981 Uniform Determination of Death Act. And since that time, uh, every state in the union has accepted this law in some some manifestation in some form, they're not all word for word the same. But the Uniform Determination of Death Act has two ways now that we can legally be declared dead. Again, this is a legal definition, not a biological definition of death. Uh, so. According to the UDDA, a person can be declared dead if not either of these two cases. Number one, uh, the irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function. That's the time and true uh, definition that's been going on for thousands of years. If your heart and your lungs stop working and you become cold, cold gray still in a corpse. The second is if you have irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem, then you could also be declared dead. Um, and this determination, they said, must be made in accordance with accepted medical standards, except the medical standards have been changing continuously since that time. Uh, and changing in not a good way, actually, though I dispute that this was ever representative of true death or biological death. Uh, This legal definition, because it allows doctors to change the way they do it, um, doctor standards for diagnosing brain death have been getting looser and looser and looser over time. So that whereas it was a little harder to declare someone brain dead back in 1968, uh, now it's becoming so easy that the most recent standard that the AAN put out last October actually allows people to be declared dead who have some continuing brain function. So we're in an interesting situation where the current medical guideline for brain death says if you have continuing uh, electrical activity on your EEG, for instance, or you have continuing function of a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, doctors' medical guidelines say you can be declared brain dead. However, the legal standard still says you have to have the irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. So right now we have a disconnect between the legal and the medical definitions of brain death. And I think this is something that people should be aware of i think people should have the right to insist that their loved one if they're going to be declared brain dead that that the doctors at least follow the law and this became quite a a big deal uh, over uh, this the year 2023 because the american academy of neurology realized doctors are at risk for lawsuits because the standards that they're giving doctors to use do not comply with irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. In fact, doctors only test the brain stem. They don't test the entire brain and the, the Neurologists decided that this was risky enough that they went to a, a legal body called the Uniform Law Commission and asked them to change the 1981 UDDA standard to adhere more closely to the, the new and looser standard that doctors were being trained to use. So the Uniform Law Commission is a nonprofit group of of lawyers and judges. And they studied this idea for a couple of years. And at their annual meeting uh, in the summer of 2023, the drafting committee was unable to reach a consensus statement to present to the full body of lawyers. And I was able to watch this on live stream. It was quite fascinating to watch, actually. Um, The lawyers were saying, now, doctors aren't following the law and you want us to change the law so as to help out the doctors. Why don't we just have the doctors follow the law? That would be an idea, wouldn't it? And so there there was quite a debate. And in fact, some of the lawyers said, you know, we just don't even want to raise this issue. If the public becomes aware of the dispute and the debate about the characteristics of brain death, people are going to start questioning the whole diagnosis. It's better for us just to leave this alone. So they were not able to come to any consensus. And in fact, in September of last year, the Uniform Law Commission officially tabled their discussion. They are not proceeding to change the brain death guidelines. But I'm glad you've got this next slide up because the very next month in October last year, the uh, American Academy of Neurology came out with a new paper about their consensus guideline for determining brain death. And in this paper, they essentially recapitulate the exact things that the Uniform Law Commission refused to codify into law with their proposed revision to the UDDA. And there's some interesting things on on this slide. If you want to look at, um, what number are we on here? Uh, Slide, is it 32? So how did they come up with this brain uh, death consensus guideline. Um, They say they did it with a panel of experts. Okay. Who who are these experts? If you if you go to the next slide. Um, they say that these experts were specifically screened, first to exclude those individuals with a clear financial conflict, and but also they screened out those whose profession and intellectual bias would diminish the credibility of the guideline in the eyes of intended users. So they they... Screened out people who dispute the brain death diagnosis is what it what it sounds like to me they They took this panel of people who would, would basically had the same worldview and the same ideas and who would agree right. If you go to the next slide, here's the methods they used it's again, I mentioned this earlier they say because of the lack of high quality evidence on the subject again. We've been diagnosing people brain dead for nearly 60 years. You would think by now there would be some high quality evidence on the subject, but they admit that there is not. So what did they do? They said they used a novel evidence informed formal consensus process uh, called a modified Delphi process. Now, who's heard of a modified Delphi process? So I had to look it up. If you go online, you, know, you find that uh, this is three rounds of unanimous voting is what they did. So, or, sorry, not unanimous, three rounds of anonymous voting. And so these well, people used a process that according to experts, if uh, these people are misled on the topic, which I, which I believe they are, this Delphi process will only add confidence to their ignorance. So, again, they've taken a panel, screened to exclude excluding vo- uh, dissenting voices. And in addition, they used a method which only exacerbates the echo chamber effect. So, this whole guideline is crazy. Uh, they go on. If you go to the next slide, um, they define uh, brain death, which they're also calling now death death by neurologic criteria. So if you're used to hearing the word brain death, uh, they're trying to phase that out. They're, they want to call it death by neurologic criteria. So you may be hearing those words more and more often. And they say that this occurs in people who have sustained a catastrophic brain injury with no evidence of the function of the brain as a whole, and it should be a state that is permanent. So you know what do these terms mean? So if you go to the next slide, uh, brain as a whole, is the latest attempt to justify the brain death concept. And and again, that's been changing over time throughout history and and becoming looser, as I mentioned. And uh, brain as a whole is a a concept that uh, neurologist Dr. James Burnett has been working on for some years. And, And last summer, he wrote in the journal Neurology, while the brain as a whole criterion remains in an early stage of refinement, it probably entails cessation of all major brain functions required by the whole brain criterion, particularly those of the brainstem, but not the relatively minor functions, such as hypothalamic neurosecretion and perhaps random disorganized EEG activity. So what he's saying is his new criteria, he's sort of still hammering it out. It's, it's in an early stage of refinement, yet they're very comfortable imposing it on all of us through this new guideline. And it this new brain as a whole idea does allow people who have continuing function of the part of the brain called the hypothalamus and continuing electrical activity on the EEG to be declared brain dead. If you go to the next slide, the word permanent is is an interesting one and and in common speech I mean you and I might sort of interchange the words irreversible and permanent Mm -hmm. but there's a a major difference legally and medically going on with this language change. If you remember the UDDA insists that the uh, word be irreversible which commonly means cannot be reversed. Mm -hmm. The new guideline is has been chosen uh, is to use the word permanent. And the panel chose to use this term to mean that the function is lost. It won't come back spontaneously. And number two, medical interventions will not be used to attempt the restoration of function. Now, this adds a quality of intent to the definition. I mean, if I say that I'm not going to use an intervention, it implies that I might have used an intervention, and, and if I had, it might have succeeded, right? So right. this reveals these people are going to be declared dead who could possibly be resuscitated, it's just doctors have preferred not to. So again, this does not comply with the law under the UDDA, the, that the state of permanent is is not the legal standard. And if you go to the next slide, how do they do this testing? Well, there's there's sort of four things that I've outlined there that people need to be, and, and, and you should be aware of why these are problematic. Um, the first one is the doctor will test if you're unresponsive. Now it's important to understand that unresponsiveness is not the same as unconsciousness. So there are many people who are inwardly aware but are unable to respond and you know, if, if you think about you know someone with a high spinal cord injury if you've had a head injury very likely the upper part of your spinal cord has been damaged and you simply are paralyzed and can't move though you might be conscious now come come to that doctors have no tests for consciousness there's no way we can test it we can only test if you're willing and able to Respond, and there are people who simply can't respond. I mean, with the the COVID vaccine, people who have Guillain-Barré syndrome are unable to respond, but they're perfectly conscious. Um, there's a phase they that can't even would, really define.
1: Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I, I think ahead, it's because I, I don't think they really even defined what consciousness is, though, so, let alone to be able to take authority over who is or who isn't conscious. Um, That's a
0: very good point. I just actually had an article on American Thinker about how we are not our brains. Yeah. I mean, people have never been able to discover how you know this you know couple of pounds of of tissue generates thoughts, feelings, hopes, dreams. No one's ever found a memory in in brain studied. So again, yeah. we are a a tight union of our spiritual and physical nature, and our our spiritual nature uses the brain, to act out our hopes, dreams and desires on the physical world. But again, we are not that lump of tissue called our brains. Absolutely not. You're quite right. And this is brought out. If you go to our website, we do have a survivor's page now. Would you be interested to know that many, many people have survived a brain death diagnosis and and some have gone on to live normal lives? And there's a couple of them. You know, Zach Dunlap is is one of them. He was a a young man who was in a a four wheel ATV accident in 2007 and he had a terrible brain injury. I mean, he had brain tissue coming out of his ear and he was taken to the trauma center uh, and he was lying in the ICU bed. And he recalled uh, later, he heard the doctors telling his parents that he was brain dead. And he said, and there's nothing I could do. I couldn't move or make a sign or anything. I could just get extremely angry. Now, thankfully, he had a cousin who was a nurse and that Uh, nurse cousin, did not accept that Zach was brain dead. And just, I mean, the helicopter was landing with the surgical team to come and harvest his organs. And Zach's cousin went in and did some neurologic tests and proved to the care team that Zach was not brain dead. I mean, Zach Pretty much took a swing at his cousin when he applied a painful stimulus to his toe, as I recall. So, I mean, thankfully Zach Dunlap finally was able to respond. And and there is a, a sort of a phase people go through when their their brain is recovering from trauma called. Cognitive motor dissociation. Your mm-hmm. thinking part of your brain is there, but you haven't reestablished the connection to your body. And I know you do a lot of mind body training. And so those connections are very, very important. And as people mm-hmm. recover from a brain injury, some of those haven't, haven't been reestablished. If you keep going down the list here, uh, my friend Jenny Haman, I've been able to talk to her on the, the telephone, is a, is a lovely lady. She was in the ICU uh, when she was a young woman after having been given the wrong medication that that did not interact well with her uh, seizure medication. Oh. And she says she also remembers lying there on a ventilator in the ICU. She says she hears the shuffling feet of the care team coming in and she hears the, the, the head Doctor say well here's a here's a sad case a, a young mother with with two small children and except for her dead brain she's an excellent specimen i mean so many people could benefit from her organs but her husband is being totally just you know disagreeable unreasonable and is not consenting to make her an organ donor well and jenny talks about how she had that that horrible sensation of having to hear people discuss her in that way. And she said she really doesn't know if she would have recovered, except she had an excellent nurse who would come to her and say, Jenny, I know you're in there. Try to breathe. I know you can do it. And and Jenny says that, you know, I I remember just looking for that part of my body that would allow me to breathe and I couldn't find it. And then finally I went, and there it was. And then, she was able to make a full recovery. And and not only did she return to her work as a wife and mother, she went to nursing school and she became a nurse because she wanted to provide other people with better care than what she received. So this whole thing about responsiveness and consciousness, doctors do not have a test to know if you're conscious or not. And so this is nothing more than an educated guess. And as you can see from our survivors page, sometimes doctors do guess wrong
1: of course so is this being driven by the business of organ transplants or what is what what is behind this because i i mean we can take out the intention for a minute you know obviously people make mistakes and they could be very well-meaning mm-hmm. well-intended mm-hmm. um so that you know that always happens unfortunately have unintended consequences but it sounds like there is a motivation because there is a big business. And what what are your thoughts on that? Is that impacting this uh, brain death diagnosis?
0: You know, motivation is a, is a difficult one to know. You know, sure. yes, you're quite right. The organ transplant business is big business. I mean, in 2020, I believe it was judged to be about a $48 billion a year business in the United States. Um, yes, as you can see from this table here, you can, make a a lot of money selling body parts. If if you include the the organs with this, I mean, people have estimated that uh, a body that you donate for free can recover about $5 million in in total medical charges. You know, I think probably there is some amount of motivation money-wise. I hate to think that that that's the biggest motivation for people. I think uh, a lot of doctors, as I mentioned, I mean, if you think about, Think about the kind of people that were in your high school class that became doctors you know sure they were smart you know and mm-hmm. but the other thing about us and i, I include myself when i say this because i'm just as guilty right mm-hmm. um we were very good at knowing what the right answer on the test was okay? mm-hmm. we were very good at please the teacher we know yeah. how to we know how to get the a right and right. so you know mm-hmm. When you look at the people who are accepted to medical school, you are self-selecting. I mean, yeah, there's some there's some free-thinking geniuses there. Don't get me wrong, but most of us, we know how the system works. We know how to get the good grade. We know how to to pass along, and that's by putting the right answer on the test. And as I mentioned from my own personal experience, you know, I, I you can't possibly investigate everything your teachers tell you. And so I think it's it's very much a training process. This is what doctors have been trained to believe. And and it, this is a problem, honestly, because I think that we are training doctors to look at people as valuable sources of organs to do good for society, right? We're, we're not training doctors to look at the intricate, immense, amazing value of the individual person. And I, I detail this in my book, you know, when I was in my training, at one point I was up in the pediatric ICU preparing a, a different patient for, for a surgery and the transplant team came in and, and they were visiting their patient who sadly that patient had not done it all well and had been in the, the pediatric ICU for, for months. But when they finished visiting their patient, they started shopping around. They started looking at all the other sick little boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And the nurse sitting at the desk next to me, she sort of muttered under her breath. She goes, "Vultures." And the the, the <laughs> surgeon came up to the desk and said, you know, he smiled at us. He was a very affable man. He, he said, <laughs> "So how's 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 Ashley doing? Not too well, you know." And so they're sort of they're they're trained to look at people as a commodity really not as gosh you know here's ashley she has a family she has a story she's a she's a she's a living person and so our training has not been helpful for this and again i'm not here to say that every person with a brain death diagnosis is going to be a jenny haman or a Zach Dunlap. obviously not you know there was a young woman a 13 year old girl named jahai mcmath and I, I wonder if, if I have a, I have a slide on her, if you want to show a picture of her. She's on slide 27, I think. Mm-hmm. Jahai McMath was a, a 13-year-old, and and she went in to get a, a tonsillectomy and a, a palate repair for sleep apnea and had terrible bleeding after surgery and suffered a cardiac arrest. Uh, Jahai was correctly, so-called correctly, diagnosed as being brain dead according to both the pediatric and the adult guidelines of her day and in fact if she had been in a hospital since the new guideline published last October she also would have been declared brain dead i mean it okay. says there on the slide i mean she was uh, she had four flatline eegs she had a, a radioisotope scan showing a that she had no intracranial blood flow. Uh, She had three apnea tests. The apnea test is where they remove the ventilator and and see if you'll breathe without it. Um, But Her parents looked at this little girl, this is their daughter. and, And she was warm and she was moving at times. And they said, she's in no way dead. So the parents thankfully were able to get some help to transfer Jahai from California to New Jersey. Now, New Jersey is the only state in in the union that has a religious exemption to the brain death diagnosis. So if you move to New Jersey and and say, "I, I do not on religious grounds believe that brain death is death, then you can only be declared dead by the traditional heart and lung stoppage standard. Wow. So, interestingly, you know, and here's the thing, you know, New Jersey has had this law for over 20 years. I mean, last I saw, New Jersey wasn't bankrupt. I mean, I think this is something that every state in the union should offer and, and not just even on religious grounds. I mean, anyone should be able to dispute such a, such a poorly scientifically defined standard that brain death is and, and not not have to go through what these poor parents had to go through. But if you go to the next slide, what happened to Jahai? Um, She got to New Jersey and got medical care. Three months after she was moved to New Jersey, the girl got her period. Okay, Now, you don't have to be a doctor to know that corpses do not menstruate, Okay, by any (laughs) definition. That is not dead. And interestingly, she then also began to improve. She began to respond with her heart rate would would calm down. She, her heart rate would decrease when her mother would speak to her. Uh, and she actually had an MRI several months after going to New Jersey. And it showed that in her brain, the upper structures were fairly well preserved. The The brain stem, which controls breathing, had had a lot of damage. And two neurologists were able to evaluate her later and said even though Jehai McMath had fulfilled Filled the criteria for brain death. At that point, she was no longer brain death, but they said she was in a minimally conscious state. And in fact, I mean, if I'll tell you a little amusing anecdote, you know, one, one of the things that proved this is her mother would get her to follow commands. So her mom at one point on video I say, Jahai, which is the f u finger. Well, you know what? Jahai put up the right finger. So she, this is a girl that was not dead. She was truly thinking, understanding, <laughs> responding to commands. Now, sadly, Jahai died of liver failure about four or five oh, wow. years after her diagnosis. But I mean, wow. this is a girl that proved that the standards could be correctly performed, yet someone could improve. And so some people will improve. Now, even let's say the worst case scenario, see that someone's brain injury is so catastrophic that they're mm-hmm. not going to improve. Mm-hmm. For the love of God, do not send that person to a cold operating room to be dissected to death by a crowd of strangers. I mean, take your loved one, hold them in your arms, pray with them, sing to them, let them go to the next world knowing their love, not, not under the knife, not by having their organs removed. I mean, the the inhumanity is staggering. Yeah. Wow. Absolutely. Um, I
1: just wanted to address what you were saying about, uh, you know, the uh, intention and the motivation, I wasn't implying necessarily from doctors. I think doctors have mostly been indoctrinated. And I I think it was really funny when you're talking about how they're really good at like, you know, choosing the right multiple choice, uh, you know, ABCD and uh, getting the grade and being people pleasing. When I I started college as a neuroscience major, and uh, I I was having trouble in one of my science classes. And I actually went to, you know, it was like one of the first times in my life, you know, I'm not proud of this, but I was always kind of like, I, I don't like to be told what to study, what to do. So if I was interested in something, I will go above and beyond. But, you know, don't tell me what to do. So I hated, like, I didn't study. I didn't do homework, that kind of thing. Uh, but this is one of the first times I really did. And I was really struggling. And I went to my professor. You know, he had open office hours. And he said, so the problem is that you're you're a very independent thinker. And he said, mm-hmm. so you're not, he, the, the words he used, he said, you're not a linear thinker. And he said, so these tests are designed to weed out for pre-med. So you have to take, uh, you know, their standardized test, uh, like the MCATs for med school. And he Mm -hmm. said, so this is really what they're training you for. And he said, but I can see it just in the conversation with you. You go through each, like the multiple choice. He said, you're terrible at it because you go through each one and you try and figure out like an individualized case. How could this be, how could this be the right answer? And what would right. need to be done like you actually envision the scenario and he said mm-hmm. that the irony is that would actually make you a great doctor because you're looking Which at works. the person you're problem solving and he said but it makes you a horrible multiple choice tech taker." Yeah. Yeah. and uh, that's what yeah. we're training you do, to do here he said uh, you know i'm not and he was very very honest about it he's like i'm not proud of this but this is the system and we're not, we're not training doctors, we're training test takers. We're training you to take multiple yes. choice tests. Yes. And I, I just thought that was really funny. I, I'm not saying all doctors are like that. No, it, was no, just, no. it was just my personal experience with this professor telling me this, that that's how the system is designed. So, but just to bring it back to the topic at hand, you know, it's, I, my question was more about the people who are doing, who are creating the system, who are doing the indoctrinating mm-hmm. and who are training doctors to be looking for key things because I think this is the same thing that's happened uh with the allopathic system right it's a uh, there's kind of I, I've heard this now from several doctors that they they must have attended either the same seminar or a similar one uh where somebody gave that joke of uh I think it was like a life extension you know maybe a you know uh anti-aging type of a mm-hmm. conference and uh, the um the speaker had given the example of having like three medicines in their medicine cabinet. And they basically asked, okay, well, what age is the woman? And uh, you know, if they're childbearing age, okay, you give them birth control. If they're, you know, this age, you give them Prenpren, you know, and it, it, like, basically it's like two questions and then just, uh, you know, uh, basically a robot could do it. And this is what doctors are being trained to do. And I this is not to criticize doctors, but somewhere they got this, uh they've gotten this training that there's like, you know, the, the, the mantra of pill for nil. It's like, okay, well, you have to figure out the diagnosis and then you correlate it where we're playing, you know, puzzle or, you know, game of match, like matching. Uh, I think like, you know, I'm thinking like the old game of memory, you know, it's like, okay, this matches this. And that's basically Uh, what they're taught to do. And so, Mm -hmm. but I'm thinking about who are the people who are behind that system? Who are the people who are driving that line of thinking and that type of training? And what are they motivated by? Because there's, I I can't imagine that there isn't a reason why it's designed that way. No, and this is not to say there are no well-meaning people who are teaching uh, or creating the system. I'm sure there are, Mm -hmm. Um, but it does seem like this is a, a big business. And even if it's the best of intentions it may be just a reverse engineered result where it's like okay well we have this potential so therefore we have, we, we work backwards and this is what ends up happening but That's i right. yeah no on. you're you're
0: quite you're quite right and this is what i this is why i i speak to the public you know the mm-hmm medical journals medical textbooks medical conferences doctors have been talking to doctors about this for you know 50 60 years and and change has not occurred but what i'm trying to do is is let let the public know let let people who you know can look at it from a fresh viewpoint you know these are the people who's who end up paying the price for this system So I think I'm so grateful for, you know, venues like this where I can come out and and tell people, you know, here's here's a here's some very simple things you can say. You know, doctor, why why is my loved one being declared dead when they have a beating heart, when they're moving from time to time? I think there's a real power in asking questions. But not only that, you need some background. And so that's why we have the website Respect for Human Life be sure to put Mm -hmm. the human in there you won't get the right website respectforhumanlife.com and the new book the brain death fallacy people need to be aware of these things before a crisis strikes before they are going to be in the worst situation of their life and totally dependent on, on a medical authority so these are things you know to be prepared with beforehand what i tell people is you know there's some simple things you can do right off the bat number one don't be a registered organ donor okay just if you've signed a donor card you can go to the DMV and you know for a minimal fee you can have that removed but you know sadly this is not going to be enough because the uniform anatomical gift act was recently revised in 2006 Mm -hmm. so that now if you go into a hospital and you don't have a documented refusal to donate and your family can't be located to ask them what you would have wanted The hospital administrator can donate your body or organs on your behalf. So not only do you have, you know, not to be a registered donor, you have to have a documented refusal. And so on our website, and I see you just had it there. um, Yeah, here we go. Bodies of missing prisoners. I mean, this is an example of another, you know, opt out system. I mean, in, in, uh, I forget where this was, was this Alabama uh, that these, these prisoners, were taken to autopsy and because there was no specific refusal, their organs were apparently being sold to the medical school and And medical students said, you know, this is odd. You know, the, our organs that we're using for study are 50 times more likely to come from a prisoner. So an opt out system is not uh, ideal. It's certainly very prone to abuse. So we recommend that in addition to not being a registered organ donor, that also you have uh, life-affirming power of attorney uh, an opt-out card you can go to our website respectforhumanlife.com go to this little box here how do i get off the donor list and you can download these these forms talk to your family about how you don't want to be an organ donor talk to your doctor and have it put in your medical record so your your refusal is documented to protect yourself now i'm not saying that all types of transplant are bad not at all Uh, People are able to give a a living donation of their own free will. We have a good family friend where a mother donated a kidney to her daughter who needed a kidney. Uh, As long as no one is coerced, living donation is a a wonderful expression of of selfless love for one person to another. Tissues, again, tissues are not organs. Tissues doctors would call a tissue a thing like your cornea, your skin, your bone. Um, Tissues can be donated after biological death though if you go to our website i'm afraid to tell you there are there are some ethical problems uh, abuses in the the system for for tissue donation such as we saw with the with the prisoners that you brought up there just a little bit ago um, so there are some caveats to that but tissue donation uh, could be fine the other thing i like to do after an interview like this i i want to just reach out to people who who have either donated a loved one uh, for organ harvest or have received an organ. I want to tell you, we are, we are in no way condemning you. Honestly, it is not your fault that you were not fully informed about what was going on. If you've received an organ, we're glad you're here. You know, thank the Lord that you are still alive. But I, I, I've also talked to people, you know, they said, "You know, I gave my brother to be harvested and I didn't know." And and these people are are grief-stricken and I I don't want that to go on. I want people to know what is really going on. Again, so they'll be empowered to make perfectly informed healthcare decisions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I love I love what you're saying about the the living choice because you could even to make the choice uh you know, to dedicate it uh, afterwards. That's still a very conscious, but at least with the the awareness of what is happening and what the the consequences and ramifications are. I I do wonder because so many people have been saved by uh, organ transplants. So this mm-hmm. does it presents a lot of ethical types of questions. Um, because they're they're, honestly
0: uh, you can living donate any organ except a heart and honestly the living donations are the best donations they're the most long-lived the most successful and I think go uh, ahead
1: I'm sorry is there a way to do uh, I know obviously a living donation makes perfect sense if like the example of a mother to a child like something like that you know if you have a family member then you know but is there a way to be um I mean, I don't know who would want to do this, but I, I, I'm sure there are people who might, uh, who might want to, you know, but not necessarily know who it is. Is there a way to be like yeah. on a list uh, yeah. so that you would launch here? Okay. Yeah, That's I a have a, thing, yeah, Yeah,
0: have a nurse I used to work with received a kidney from a total stranger, someone who just felt led to want to do that beautiful donation for someone. And, and again, you do not have to be related to have a, a perfectly acceptable living donation. There was a wonderful story, uh, I believe it was from Atlanta a few years ago, a couple of healthcare workers found out that each of them had a husband in need of a transplant. And sadly, the wife couldn't donate to her own husband, but they found that they could donate to the other one's husband and so now we have two very happy couples and so again living donation is is a wonderful thing again as long as no one is coerced and there have been abuses of that too there was a a nigerian senator that was just uh, convicted in england for kidnapping a man from from lagos up to donate an organ for his daughter in england and and the man escaped in I mean, you have this funny picture in your head of this man running through the streets of London saying, I don't want to donate. But he was able to find the authorities and and, and they actually were convicted and, and sentenced to prison time for compelling this man to be you know, a living donor. So we have to be careful of that as well.
1: Yeah, no, of course. Um, to so you know a little bit about my story. My grandfather actually had offered to uh, donate one of his eyes to me, but they don't do full eye transplants. Um, yeah, yeah, that yeah. would be an example. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful sentiment though. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. But again, you don't have to be, you know, it's not unethical to take a cornea. I mean, those things can be harvested from someone who is biologically deceased. And so, you know, not all transplants are wrong, but you know, the, the organs, the heart, the lung, liver, kidneys, intestine, pancreas. At this point in time, those do need to come from someone who is still biologically alive. Though there's some interesting research coming out of Yale uh, University there. They're working on taking organs that have been, warm dead for several hours and then seeing if they can rejuvenate them enough to be transplantable. So there's some good news, you know, coming in. And I and again, I think that the fact that we've been using these poor people as organ donors has stymied research into ethical ways to make transplant a, a good option for people. I think if we hadn't been doing this, we would have had a, a fully implantable, you know, mechanical heart by now. I think we've lost 60 years of good research into the development of good treatments, also into the treatment of brain injury. I mean, there are so few of these people who don't become organ donors. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, so we don't have the people to work out new ways of treating brain injury. I mean, just yesterday, there was a paper published in the AMA uh, Neuro. Uh, journal of the American Medical Association Neurology Section, in China, they're putting a little medicine under people's tongues who've had a stroke and, and seeing how just doing little things like that, their, their functional outcome is much, much improved. And the author said, you know, we could be doing this in comatose people. So there's a lot of research into brain injury that needs to be done, could be done, but we're, we're sacrificing all of that to these people being hauled off for their organs
1: wow that that is tragic i I didn't really think about that that so much of the research would be uh you know stunted as a result. Mm-hmm. They feel like they have a solution, so why continue to investigate i I think so much more research needs to be done on the brain in general, and I think that people are very locked in you know as as we discussed earlier the the this idea that we are our brains, and I think there's so much evidence to indicate otherwise that there really is a, it does require a spiritual shift for some people or a paradigm shift for others. Um, But, you know, it looks more and more like it's some sort of a, I I look at it like almost like an antenna, you Mm -hmm. know, it's like a spiritual Mm -hmm. antenna. So it's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, combining us with a, you know, a, uh, like a, a spiritual metaphysics, uh, you know, integrating that with the physical domain.
0: Yeah. And I was thinking about your case, too. I mean, you as a a person who lives with disabilities right now, our diagnosis criteria for brain death are based on function. And last year, you know, when the Uniform Law Commission was reevaluating, you know, what the law should be for brain death, disabilities groups wrote many, many letters because people with living with disabilities know They do not want to be declared dead or alive based on function. This is a big problem.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Mm -hmm. I mean, even just uh, when you talk about so much of the responsiveness is based on hearing. And in my surgery, I've only had one surgery where they let me keep one hearing aid in. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, uh, all of my other surgeries, I've had my hearing aids out. That that one was interesting because apparently uh I wasn't completely out and I did hear them uh talk. And <laughs> oh, no. I heard them say, like, pass the 4 So when I woke up, I asked my doctor, I'm like, what's a 4 He said it was a suture. Yeah. Um, Oops. Yeah, so that one I actually did hear and I could feel mm-hmm. it. Um, not like I couldn't feel pain, but you know, but I was conscious. Definitely. Well, that's a
0: scary thing, I don't like to hear yeah, that. I'm I, I about thinking, that. Don't
1: move, don't move, no. <laughs> don't move. That could be bad. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, but most of the response is based on uh, audible uh auditory stimuli, and mm-hmm. if somebody is uh hearing impaired and they're not hearing you're going to, pre- to proclaim them dead because they they didn't hear you and therefore didn't respond um yeah i mean that's just one example but obviously i thought of it because relevant to me um but yeah i i think i could see how that would be it's really interesting so many of these things that come up a lot of uh i've noticed just in many different uh over the past few years as i've been exploring all this, this wide range of topics and how the world works. There have been in a lot of these different categories, the people who are pushing back actually are the disabled. Um, And I, I think it is because they... And I guess there there might be many reasons why they're often the the the, the case for eugenics. You know, I mean that that was one of the uh, primary statements that the eugenicists made. So I think whether they're aware of that or not, there's going to just be a logical pushback, uh, just based on uh, the intrinsic nature of what, what's feeding so many of these uh, uh, different behavior. Uh, but I think it's also, and the, this is just. Uh, you know, it's a, a less uh, tangible type of a uh, uh, reason. But I think there is something to be said for if consciousness, if, if our existence is not just physical and there is a spiritual element, um, you know, then this this whole idea of what it means to be in the physical domain is obviously there. there's a variation when you're talking about people with disabilities. Um, you know, just to bring this kind of make it concrete for people. I had an experience when I lived down in uh, California, when I was, when I first moved there to get my driver's license and the, you know, they give you an eye test to do the driver's license. And they, of course, you know, they have you close one eye and then they do the, and I, I said, well, well, don't do that. Cause you know, it's pointless. I can't see out of the other eye. Um, you know, I can tell you if the lights on or off and I'm grateful for that, but you know that's it. i'm not mm-hmm. going to read the letters on the chart you know so mm-hmm. uh, and the woman told me uh, that i was not human because what? human beings have two eyes yes
0: um, See I, this this is such it, such a travesty i mean i'm bringing this up and it it seems ridiculous but it is it is that same logic that you're talking about if if we are our brains let's just okay. say we are our brains okay, okay someone who's lost some brain function you know with the ability to see someone who's had a stroke has lost mm-hmm. part of their humanity they're no mm-hmm. longer fully human right and that's if you continue the logic well now if you're not able to show evidence of brain function you have ceased to exist right which is absolutely not true otherwise as an anesthesiologist i would be you know killing and making alive every time i put you to sleep <laughs> and woke you up right it's it's, it's foolishness <laughs> It, it, so is, yes, it is ludicrous. American and, Thinker article: We are not yeah. our brains.
1: I, I'm going to read that. That that's fascinating, and mm-hmm. I I totally agree. I think we're not our brains, and uh, you know, I I keep uh I keep talking about how strange it is that I feel like Descartes keeps coming up. You know, the the mind body dualism, and uh, this is. that that, that's still resurfacing today that people are still asking this question when i think that that was pretty much resolved that no Mm -hmm. uh you know it's not a mind-body duality it's a i mean i think it's much more integrated than that i think it's mind-body-spirit um Mm -hmm. you know we're we're much more than what uh the tangible realm can perceive i think
0: yeah Um, and is infinitely valuable no matter what their abilities, disabilities are, you know, as, as a as a Christian myself, I mean, every person is made in the image of God and is of infinite, mm-hmm. infinite worth. And that is something that we've sort of lost track of, especially in medical training. It's not something that I ever heard in medical school. So we need to get yeah. back to, to that, to our spiritual roots, let's say.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree. That's very interesting. Number, I, I guess they didn't want to Uh, project a specific spiritual line of thinking into the uh, teaching but it is interesting that that's there was never any kind of inference of uh, anything beyond just the very um, and and I don't even want to call it secular because I don't think that that's quite right but it's a very uh, physical realm
0: well, and, and secular wouldn't be bad. I mean, I graduated from medical school back in 1988, and our school didn't even use the Hippocratic Oath anymore because the Hippocratic Oath prohibits taking, you know, giving a patient a drug for euthanasia and taking a, a woman pregnant and offering her an abortion. And so that was totally verboten. We weren't, we did not have to swear the Hippocratic Oath. They didn't want us to, in fact, because our society was going a different direction. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. No, it's pretty wow. standard from other people I've talked to. I I, I think you have to go back to people who graduated much earlier to, to hear someone that still used the Hippocratic Oath.
1: I didn't realize that. I thought that that was still standard. No, I had no not idea. Many years. Wow. Well, I mean, that's not even, uh, I mean, <laughs> that that that's ancient Greece. I mean that's uh that's, that's so foundational. I I can't yeah, believe it that should they should be. that out.
0: It should be, but we have lost we have lost our way, we've lost our roots.
1: Yeah, for sure. That that's that's really tragic and that's really scary mm-hmm. because if you have mm-hmm. no uh moral grounding then who's to stop uh you know, just a whole generation of Frankensteins.
0: Well, and that's why the the redefinition of death back even in 1968, it was only justified, you know, in a utilitarian sense, not on an ethical or moral sense. It was a utilitarian pronouncement from the get-go.
1: Sure, sure. Uh, Well, I think that's something that could possibly be, uh, you know, reinstated at local levels. I think that's something people should work on.
0: In well, Twitter. I'm very encouraged. You know, I was able to speak to some medical students at Texas A&M University. And, you know, right. I'm very, I was very encouraged because they, they were saying, wow, Dr. Klessig, we, how do we how do we talk to our, our supervisors, our, our instructors about this? And I said, you know, there's a great power in just asking the question. Question what you're being taught, ask them to defend it. And again, I think when people are forced to stop, back up, examine the issues then then they can have time to come up with with a better opinion you know the way you like to look at your multiple choice question right Stop and think about it. don't just you know label the diagram and go on you know just let's right. let's stop and think about it. And the fact that you know these these medical students were interested in doing that gives me great hope. Yeah no
1: absolutely. Um, if we could pull that up back up it was saying that they did not feel the Hippocratic oath was relevant in modern day. Um that's just uh, pretty unnerving, uh, but that's what you were saying. I don't know if yeah. we can pull that slide back up, but.
0: No, it's quite true. And, and what we see going along with our neighbor to the north in Canada, you know, shows us where where this oh, is. Oh, yeah, kind of-
1: the MEAD, Medical mm-hmm. Assistance in Dying. This is some say the oath is irrelevant in modern medical practice because it does not address ethical issues that are relevant today. It is still an invaluable moral guide and has been adopted by AMA and WMA. Many medical schools still administer a version of the Hippocratic Oath to its graduates. This is from PubMed Central. That is, yeah, I think that the, there should be some sort of, uh, you know, um, mandate requiring. If people can, you know, at the local level, work on some sort of legislator, legislature,
0: I think. Yeah, that's that's what I would like to, I mean, in my, my, you know, my narrow focus on on the brain death topic, again, if any of your viewers have, you know, the ability to work with state legislatures, you know, I would like to see every state have an opt out for the determination Mm -hmm. of brain death as a as a way that people can be declared dead i i don't know why new jersey you know well i know why new jersey is is because the orthodox jewish population they're lobbied very hard and got that changed so now in new jersey people have an option so i think why don't we all get that option i think that would be a really nice direction a positive direction for people so that they could make their own choice
1: that is really interesting. I, I'm originally from New Jersey, um, Good for you. And, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, that, that is interesting to me because, uh, you know, the, there was a lawsuit for my birth. It, it was called the wrongful birth case. And, uh, the, the, uh, the notion was that the alternative would have been abortion. Uh, but that was a very rare at that time because it was a Catholic, it was a Catholic state. Um, mm-hmm you know so it seems like there are several religious groups there uh vying for things but but so that was what it ended up being but that that's just interesting to me I'd i'd have to go back and look at uh some of how those laws came to be but well yeah. if you go to my that. book
0: the brain death fallacy it, it yeah i do go, i do go through how some of these laws came into being over the history how I have quotes from some of the people in New Jersey who helped formulate these laws. So again, it's, it's, again, I wrote this book. It's very well documented. There's footnotes in it, but you know, it's not, I don't think it's too hard for lay people to understand. I think I tried to, you know, split the difference. If you're a doctor, there's Mm -hmm. chapter and verse and medical journals and citations, everything you're going to want to know. On the other hand, I had a 95-year-old lady at my church who read it. So I don't think it's too difficult for people to understand. So if you if you Great. want to sort of see this whole uh, discussion in a nutshell, I, I'd recommend the book. It's available on our website, respectforhumanlife.com, and also on Amazon.
1: Great. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. I'm so curious about uh, how some of those, uh, you know, uh, how that particular lawsuit actually came to be, because it sets the precedence. It's a great precedence for other states to then follow. Mm-hmm. So I, I never thought I'd find myself uh, lobbying, but I seem to be doing that on a couple of issues now. So maybe I will look into that as well, see if we can implement that here. Because the more states to that do that, that, I've noticed that people will reach out and they say, that, well, this is hopeful with sets a precedence to model after in our state. So right. It, right. it does make a difference what happens in one state. It can yes, really impact thank you. the others. Yeah. So you're welcome. Well, thank you so much. Um, do you have anything else you want to impart us with before? Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing awareness to this. This is not something I would have ever thought about. I mean, I've thought about our organ harvesting because there's a whole other side to organ harvesting also. You know, there's a I think more awareness has come to the topic uh, through some of the speculations around trafficking and some of the more underground organ harvesting that might be occurring. And I've heard that that does actually happen through hospitals as well. I'm not super versed in the topic, but, you know, I've certainly uh, seen some references. And that's really disturbing. But I don't—I never thought about it in such a, um, you know, kind of more mainstream traditional medical Type of uh, scenarios and procedures, so
0: that's yeah, sure. You know, if if people, you know, when I speak, it's it's very difficult for people because I I I hear people say, "You've just rocked my world." I have to rethink everything I thought I knew, and and I'm here to tell you, look, I get it. You know, it took me a long time to research and put all this together and, and wrap my mind around it. So I'm I'm very sympathetic. That's what you know the the website is going to do for you i mean take a look at the website it does go Mm -hmm. over the different types of transplant and which are ethical and which are not i mean we talk about you know the living transplant we talk about the tissue transplant we talk about you know chinese forced organ harvesting which is going on with with the falun gong practitioners and the uyghur muslims and now the house church christians in china i mean if you are a political minority you are being targeted and transplant tourists come from all over the world to have their transplant on the day that political prisoner is killed by organ harvesting. So we have links to that on on there. We have the whole discussion of donation after brain death, which we've talked a lot about today. There's another type of donation, which is called donation after circulatory death, which is a whole nother, well, a whole nother discussion. I mean, that one is taking people who uh, have have the possibility of still being able to be resuscitated who are not brain dead and taking their organs and which is an, a, it, it's it's unspeakable but it is going on in in hospitals around the country today. Um, so, and then the xenotransplants, right? People have been trying to take genetically modified pigs and make their organs acceptable to humans for transplant and, and so far they are not being successful but there's some ethical questions there as well so if you want to just take a look at the website that will give you a, a good overview about what's you know the questions that the ethics involved. and then if you want to dig more deeply into the the brain death laws uh, the brain death fallacy is, is going to help you a lot with that my new book
1: Great. So, again, the that website is respectforhumanlife.com. That's right. Okay. So for the people who may be listening, not watching. And uh, where to buy the book is on the website. Is that the best place to buy the book? On the
0: website or on Amazon. Both places are fine.
1: Okay. The Brain Death Fallacy by Dr. Heidi Klessig. Yeah, definitely. Let's go check that out. We'll post the links for all of that below. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is uh, not an easy subject to discuss, but you've uh, outlined it really clearly. And uh, yeah, it's... uh, Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: This has been a wonderful discussion.
1: Thank you so much. And thank you all for watching and listening.